When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to the Family Brain with your host, Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Today on the Family Brain, I'll be talking with Erin Erkeline, the Executive Director of ThriveWell Cancer Foundation. ThriveWell Cancer Foundation is a San Antonio nonprofit that helps fund research for cutting-edge cancer um, work and also has programs to help families and individuals who are going through a cancer recovery or diagnosis just maintaining optimal health, whether it be through diet or exercise and just supporting each other through that process. Um, what I love is not only the work that ThriveWell is providing to the community, but also I feel like Erin has so many good insights just from her work with people who people and families that are going through cancer, um, just in how we can better show up for our loved ones, our friends who might be going through this diagnosis and just managing not only the mental and also the physical aspects of that. Maybe you could just start off by talking a little bit about what ThriveWell Cancer Foundation does and sort of how you came to be a part of it. Sure. So ThriveWell Cancer Foundation was founded back in 2007, and we provide three very different but equally important um, programs here in the San Antonio and surrounding communities. We have an exercise and nutrition program, which is called our Diva and Dude program, and it was started, it was actually kind of our flagship program, and how that started was back in 2007, the research was just piling up about the benefits of exercise and nutrition to folks post-treatment who were battling breast cancer, and so it originally started as a DIVA program um, because what they were finding in the research is if a woman who went through treatment for breast cancer after her traditional treatment was ended, if she could exercise three to eight hours a week and stick to a pretty healthy diet, she could literally cut the chances of recurrence in half by up to 50%. 
And what we also knew about um, big pharmaceutical companies was that they were jumping up and down and getting really excited about a 3 to 5% decrease in recurrence. So when you talk about a 50% um, reduction in recurrence for cancer, that's really um, paradigm shifting. And so what our founders, what Thrivewell's founders really focused on was getting a free exercise and nutrition program available to then breast cancer, but we've now expanded to that. What we know now is that that's, that holds true for pretty much any kind of cancer. And so we morphed it into our Diva and Dude program. We're now providing um, exercise classes. Uh, I think we're at 31 per week at five different locations across the city. We do monthly nutrition classes. We have a quarterly nutrition workshop, which is an all-day, really intensive this is what you need to eliminate from your diet. This is what you need to be including. This is what you need to be paying attention to. And additionally, like I said, um, it doesn't really, it's not really unique to cancer. This is really sort of um, any sort of anti-disease. Um, this diet and exercise program is good for anybody, but ours is specific to um, cancer patients and survivors. So that's our first program. We also provide cutting-edge um funding for cutting-edge research happening here in the San Antonio area. Um, we're not talking about huge multi-million dollar grants. Our main goal is to get a really good idea off the ground, and so we provide seed money to local researchers who are kind of looking for that first break um, in what they feel like is a, has, they have a pretty good hypothesis. They probably already have some, um, have had some success in the lab, and so um, we fund translational research that um, can go from being just happening in the lab to potentially uh, being a part of a patient's care. And so all of that money stays here in San Antonio. Every penny raised stays here. Um, and we've been pretty successful. We've donated close to, well, over half a million dollars now to lots of different kinds of research covering ovarian, breast, um, bladder, prostate, brain. Um, really what we're looking for is to be that next home run for a local researcher to get that idea off the ground. And I thought of you. What we do. Oh, I Go was going to say, I thought of you when I was um, driving home from dropping my kids off at camp because I saw this giant billboard that said cancer fighting robots. And I'm like, what does that um, even mean? I mean, it's like the stuff that's going on is just incredible. You know, I mean, it caught my eye because I'm like, what? Yeah, it's really mind blowing when you think of just within the last, I mean, five years, the way things have changed and the treatment options that are available to folks. And what is exciting for the San Antonio community is really you don't have to step foot outside of your neighborhood to get the most cutting-edge care. Um, and so I just I feel so blessed to be a part of this community, not only to be providing services, but knowing that in my own backyard, if I um, am, have ever been struck by this disease, that I'm going to get the highest level of care, um, and I don't have to travel to do that. So it's, it is. It's really pretty amazing what's gone on within the research community, and it's happening here, you know, in our city. So, right. um, yeah, it's really exciting. And then, so our third program is our patient assistance program, and for that, for us, that means that we provide financial assistance and transportation assistance to folks as they're going through their treatment journey. Um, you know, I think that this is a cause that a lot of people have an intimate familiarity with. And so most people know that when you are facing cancer, you're going to go through radiation, you're going to have to go through chemotherapy most likely, and you're probably going to have surgery depending on 
the site and location and type of your disease. But what a lot of people don't understand is even with the best of insurance plans, when you go through radiation, it's every day for six weeks sometimes. Sometimes it's more than six weeks. And so what that means is you're paying a copay every day for six weeks, again, if you're lucky enough to have a good insurance plan. And so, um, you know, if you're even looking at a low-end copay of $30 every day mm-hmm. for six weeks, and that doesn't include all the other appointments that you have to get to your care, um, blood draws and scans, and, you know, so it can be financially crippling to most families. Um, and we're talking about families with double income and who really feel like they're in a really solid place. But when you're faced with a devastating diagnosis like this, it's not until you get into it and you start seeing the money going out that you are quite often, I mean, beyond stressed because it's cancer doesn't wait for a convenient time. It doesn't wait for people to be really secure in how they're living. Um, and so quickly, if you're lucky enough to have um, a savings plan that's zapped, but if you're living paycheck, paycheck to paycheck, like most folks in our communities are, um, it can be catastrophic. And so we really aim to be that safety net for folks as they're having to make decisions about their care. And what we want to do with our financial assistance and our transportation assistance is to eliminate that stressor that um, can go on and just have people focus on getting well and being a part of their treatment and um, surviving, you know, not only surviving, but really thriving. So what we know about cancer now is with a stage one or stage two diagnosis, if you can get to every single appointment and um, keep yourself pretty healthy, you're going to easily hit that five-year mark 100% of the time. That, that's what we know now with the research that we've been a part of. You, if you can get to your care, you are going to survive at least another five years, and most often you're going to go on and cancer, while traumatic, while you're going through it, it's just going to be a blip on your radar screen. Uh, are there a lot of people there, who don't get to their appointments? Well, that's, that's the issue. And so yeah. what happens is if you get diagnosed with early stage and you then don't have a reliable means of transportation, a stage one diagnosis can quickly turn into stage three and stage four where treatment options are far more problematic and um, it can be, you're looking at, you know, surviving to having not so good of a chance of hitting that five-year survival mark. So um, for us, we really want to help folks who, um, you know, have options on the table and can get can get really good care, but without transportation, without having some sort of safety net around that financial piece, they choose not to go to care. And a stage one diagnosis quickly turns into stage four. And that's problematic with any disease, but with cancer, it's fatal. Um, and so, you know, we really want to help folks survive and move on with their lives and not worry about debilitating their families um, in the meantime, financially. So... Um, so if someone is not fortunate enough to be in San Antonio to have this as a resource, what would be some things that you would suggest um, or ways to get this kind of support if you're living somewhere else? Is there like a clearinghouse where you can get information or ways to, to just find out what the resources are in your area? Yeah, so probably the most 
well-known organization when it comes to accessing resources for cancer, uh, for a cancer diagnosis, or how to help someone going through cancer is the American Cancer Society. And they do have a national clearinghouse number. I'd be happy to give that um, to folks if you want me to do that. It is 1-888-227-6333. And what we generally do, if it's somebody who's in Michigan, say, um, we will encourage them to call the national number and then get plugged into their local chapter of the American Cancer Society. So that that's probably the best, like you said, clearinghouse. But what I would also encourage folks to do is if you are if you received a diagnosis and you know you're going to be starting treatment, most practice most oncology practices now have a position that's called a financial counselor or they have a social worker who has knowledge of all the resources that are available in their community. And they may know of programs available through, the, depending on the type of cancer and depending on the types of drugs that you're going to be using through your treatment, some of the pharmaceutical companies will underwrite care for patients, and so then that's alleviated on that end, and the, the patient may only be responsible for the office visits. Or, you know, these financial counselors and these social workers and these nurses can get really creative about how they are able to best support folks um, who may not have a Thrivewell in their community. So... Um, I would encourage them to really be their, be their own advocate and talk to somebody within that oncology practice and say that I want to talk to a social worker, I want to talk to a financial counselor, because this is going to be um, challenging for me to pay these bills. Well, this is why I think this kind of information and spreading awareness about what we can do to help people that are going through cancer or support people that are going through cancer or... If, if this is a diagnosis we get ourselves, because I was talking to a friend this morning, just her mom ha- was diagnosed with cancer. And I was asking her if she had any, you know, suggestions of things I should ask you about. And um, she was talking about how guiding someone to help someone be their advocate, because in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, like, call and check in on them or, you know, make them a bunt cake mm-hmm. or something, you know, like that. And mm-hmm. and there's just so many logistics that are needed to be kept track of that it sounds like it's important to have somebody sort of by your side to help you walk through this. I could not agree more. Um, I think that what happens quite often, not always, but quite often with patients is they get the diagnosis and it's kind of like the deer in the headlights. But while you're stuck in that deer in the headlights reaction, you're also getting thrown all this information about when your next appointments are, what your treatment schedule is going to look like. Um, I mean, just as basic of this is the kind of cancer you have, it can just be so overwhelming, the amount of information that is thrown at you. And so I think being a partner, being a caregiver, being able to go to appointments with folks is really important if that's the type of support they want. Obviously, you know, the best person to ask about how best to support them is that person, that patient. Um, But by and large, I would say just being the ears for those who have to go to all these different appointments, um, that is critical because it's confusing, it's overwhelming, it's incredibly emotional, um, but it doesn't have to be with the right support and the right care. So you're absolutely right. Just kind of keeping track of, 
if you have a family member that you're really close to and you know that they don't have anybody that can accompany them to the, to the appointments, if you're able to, make that offer because by and large, that's going to really help them. And just take notes, take copious notes about what's happening um, with the treatment, even, you know, what kinds of, the name of the drug that they're being administered, how much of that drug, um, because it, it's going to help them on the back end when they can clearly think about what they just went through. Um, and if something happens and they should have a recurrence and they have all that information and they're able to um, talk to their doctor with the knowledge of what they have already experienced. I'm wondering if you can, can, can you share a story or an example that you can think of, of a situation where you saw people really rallying around someone well, and then maybe a story of how it can kind of go wrong? Because I think a lot of times people have the best of intentions in wanting to support other people, but it sometimes can go off kilter. And I think, I mean, sure. what you said makes a lot of sense. You have to check in with the person to find out what, I mean, just like we're all different in all different ways, you know, what, what kind of support are they looking for? But I guess just maybe an example of something that, that went well, and then maybe sort of like the pitfalls or the things to look out for to be aware that you might think you're helping, but you're really not. Sure. So we, um, we have, we've experienced this journey with lots of people. Um, they, and it ranges, it's all over the place for folks, but I will I'll give you two quick examples. So um, first one that didn't go so well, we had a woman who was um, diagnosed early stage, stage two, um, was handling treatment pretty well, but her husband really struggled with the diagnosis. And this is, that's totally normal, it, it's okay, but what ended up happening was, because he wanted to go with her to every single appointment, it became more of her making sure he was okay rather than focusing mm. on herself. And I'm thrilled to report she's in remission. She's fine. Everything went well. But because he felt so, um, I think, just unsure of how this was all going to go and the thought of losing his wife and how was, how was this going to look for his family, um, it, he borrowed a lot of trouble that he didn't have to because they managed just fine. But she ended up caring more for him than he did for her. You know, and in retrospect, maybe that kept her mind off what she was going through. But I know it was challenging for her because, you know, sitting and talking with her, she was like, oh, my gosh, I have to make sure he's okay um, before I can even get in the car in the morning. You right. know, And she needed him to drive her because she was not well enough to drive when she was going through chemotherapy. It really knocked her off her feet. Okay. Um, but that was challenging. And in a way, I don't think she anticipated. And maybe he didn't either because I, I've not been able to really talk to him other than, hey, how you doing kind of thing. Um, but for her, I think she probably could have used even a couple girlfriends to go with her rather than her husband, but he would not have had it. It okay. was just he wanted to be there every step of the way. And, um, you know, if she was concerned if she even got any kind of bad news, it would just kind of throw him off the ledge. Okay. Um, so that would again, be an example I, I, of like checking in with yourself instead of checking in with the patient right. around what is, right. is going to work for you. Okay. Right. That makes sense. Them, you know, she handled it pretty well. And so let them guide how you respond. And if, if they have a really bad day and need to cry, then cry with them. But if they're doing okay, just, just reiterate, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, you know, um, for however you need me to be. Um, 
you know, I talked to one woman who said, I'm really tired of people saying, well, really, how are you? <laughs> you know, so fine. I'm yeah. fine. Um, yeah. And it was like people didn't believe her. Right. She was okay. Right. Um, so. And maybe no, it's okay to not be fine, but also not really want to talk about it with you. I mean, you know, that's exactly. okay, too. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's what's really, what what has come out of our Diva and Do program, but I don't think we anticipated at the beginning of all this, is that it's become sort of this pseudo-support group for folks to come around in community um, and be with people who know exactly the journey they walked. Um, because our spouses don't know, our kids don't know, as well-intended as everyone may be in our lives, unless they have done it, they just don't know. And um, I would encourage folks who don't have someone in their inner circle who's maybe been through cancer, who knows, you know, their mom went through cancer, and so here's what they experienced, um, to get involved in a group like Diva and Dude, because it gives you an instant group of people who know that when you show up to exercise that day, your body may look a little different if you've had a mastectomy or you may not have any hair and so you're wearing a headscarf. It's not like going to a regular gym where, you know, maybe 25 or 50% of the people look like they could be on a magazine. Right. Um, everybody in that room is, has gone through or is going through exactly the kind of thing that you've gone through. Um, so, and for those of us who are caregivers, we should not feel offended or bad that they want to talk to people who have been there. You know, um, it, it's really, it's really helpful to be able to bounce things off of folks who have already gone through it and come out on the other side because there's that instant hope of, well, she or he did it and look how well they're doing. I know this is going to be a tough battle for me, but there is hope at the other side of it, on the other side of it. Um, Okay, so now for a really good example. Yeah, bring us back up again. Bring us back up. No. <laughs> yeah. um, so when we we have a family who has to travel in a little bit, they're, they're a little bit further out. But so the, the family comes in together to support mom. And all three of her kids, when we help them come in and talk about the care and talk about the appointments, and, and I can just tell that this is, it's not just her going through this, it's the whole family, and they have really rallied around mom. And now, they have the luxury of being able to do that, too. Um, they, they're they all here all the time, you know, and so she it just feels incredibly supported. Um, basically, I mean, sometimes it's not even her talking. It's them talking to us about her multiple appointments, and um, you can just tell that the whole family, this is not just a diagnosis that she's facing, the whole family is a part of this. Um, and and it's working for them. So, you know, I think that they're the strong ones when she can't make sense of her treatment schedule. They'll make sure she gets to every single appointment. Um, it's all, they're all experiencing this, and they're all on the same page with how to best support mom. So... And do you guys have any kind of, um, I know you have the support through the Diva and Dudes program. Are, are there any kind of therapies or family counseling that you guys um, can help people access? Because I'm just thinking just in those two examples you're talking about how sometimes when illness strikes or hardship, it just brings out all the family stuff. Good stuff or bad stuff. So like, what do you, where do you put all this stuff? Like it's, it you know, and it's, it's, it, it's going to be there, but it just, yeah. how do you manage that? There are, so what's, the, 
what's interesting about the San Antonio community is there are these um, different groups of people meeting for various different kinds of cancers or um, depending on where they are in the treatment journey. Um, we do have a list of therapists who can work with families. We have a list of support groups that go on around the, uh, around the community. So what I would encourage folks to do is if they are looking for that kind of support, either call us directly or talk to whoever family, whatever family member is going through it. They're, like I said, social workers or counselors because they probably have that list too. Okay. What, um, what have you seen in your experiences with people's reaction to getting a diagnosis? I'm sure it can range. And what would you suggest as a helper or as a family member would be helpful for people managing all of those feelings without, you know, obviously there's the therapy option, but, you know, say you're a friend or you're a family member and you just, you want to say the right thing, but you're not sure what the right thing is. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the important thing is to just have a really honest conversation with your friend or family member um, and ask them how they're, how they're feeling. Um, and I think because we've come so far with treatment, there are, uh, there tends to be a minimization of a diagnosis mm -hmm. because it's terrifying on one hand, for the not only the person getting the diagnosis, but for the family member. But then there's also this, okay, well we're gonna we're gonna beat this thing, and it's gonna be a piece of cake, and it's not. I mean, as far as we've come with treatment, it's still it's really hard for folks. Um, the side effects aren't as bad as they used to be with chemotherapy, and there's lots of stuff that nurses and doctors can help with um, if people are struggling struggling with that piece of it. Um, but I do think it's you know, frame of mind is everything, and so staying positive without getting annoying about staying positive, mm -hmm. um, and if they are feeling scared, let them be scared. It's not it, it's not helpful to say, oh, don't worry about it. Right. That's, that's not effective. Let them guide the conversation, and, you know, on Tuesday, the person may be feeling like, I've got this, this is no big deal, but by Thursday, they may be feeling, I am so scared about what next week is even going to look like. So, um, you know, it, it's a roller coaster, but like a lot of things in life, we are, we're all on those roller coasters depending on, you know, everybody's got their story and everybody's got their own battle. So I think, unfortunately, you know, cancer is one of those that um, late stage is very, very difficult still. Right. But I think you handle it the same way you would with any sort of challenge your friend or family member is, is going through and being there for them, but letting them guide how you support is really, really important. Okay. And not trying to convince them that it's going to be okay, or you shouldn't be angry, or, you know, one of the things that I've heard a few different times from friends who had family going through um, a cancer diagnosis um, is that when it starts to get to the point where it, it doesn't seem super hopeful to the person who's not the patient, but the patient has to almost hold on to hope. And, and that mm -hmm. frustration, almost like they want them to realize maybe they're not going to be okay, but the patient needs to hold on to the hope. Am I making sense? The patient needs to Absolutely. hold on to the hope yeah. because what are they going to do? I mean, We're without hope, there's not much. Right. Yeah. Um, right. 
Is that something you've seen a lot of, or is that just my experience? Sure, but I, I think um, what I find really encouraging and um, I think most supportive is if that's the headspace they need to be in, then by, it, it can't hurt for them because you never know when that next miracle is going to come. What I would encourage folks to do, and this has nothing to do with the cancer diagnosis, but have those palliative care conversations now before you are going to be faced with a life-threatening diagnosis. Talk about what you want your end-of-life care to look like, and that could happen at 40 or it could happen at 92. So, you know, I think that as um, this is totally off topic, really, but I really think it's important, and what I've learned in the six years that I've been doing this work is that if you can have those conversations when you're healthy and feeling good about life, it's so much easier on the back end when you may face, or, or never, you may never face that, but at least your family knows what your wishes are, and then you can stay hopeful and wish for a miracle and all those things that may may come into play. It's not off topic at all, because I think this is something you're learning and realizing in the work you do, you know, and it's sort of a gift to everyone else who maybe does not have this diagnosis at this point to prepare. Um, do, are there any resources or online kind of like a, a worksheet that you've found that helps people go through that planning? Yeah. So what I think the term now is called advanced directives. So if people Google advanced directives, there's all kinds of packets that they can tailor to their own, like all the way down to what kind of songs do you want sung at your memorial service? Or, do, you know, just really those minutiae details that may mean nothing to a lot of folks but mean everything to others, you know? So um, if you could put together that kind of packet, so even if you have to go into the hospital for, I don't know, an appendectomy, then at least when the nurse says, have you, do you have an advanced directive, you can say, yeah, I do. Nothing's going to happen to you during that appendectomy. But at least you've got all that stuff done in the event that something goes haywire or you leave the hospital and are in a car wreck. You know, so just I just think being as prepared as possible for for end of life, whenever that comes for most of us, God willing, it's going to be what, you know, decades from now. Um, but you just never know. And right. so to be as prepared as you possibly can, because that's a, it's a way harder conversation to have when you are faced with a life-threatening diagnosis than when things are going well. Well, and I would think it could bring up, talk about bringing up family issues. You know, if, if the siblings have different ideas of what they think dad would have wanted, or, you know, Absolutely. it can bring up a lot of unnecessary arguments, I guess. Absolutely. And I have a perfect example of that. So a friend of mine, her, she has three siblings. Mom had already passed. And dad had late-stage diagnosis, and he was well, well into the end of his life. Um, and what they found was his, both his parents, both of their parents had um, advanced directives. And so what, the way she explained it to me was that his voice was so clear in that room when we had to make decisions, there were no questions about what we needed to do. And I just thought, I mean, I get chills talking about it now because what a gift that was to that family because he was not physically present with them when they were making those decisions, but he was there and his wishes were granted and they had 
the peace of knowing that they did exactly what he wanted to do to honor him in the best way possible, you know? Yes. Um, and because it, so many times I think families go, go into something like that and they're arguing about, well, that's not what she would want. She would have wanted. Well, how do you know, you know? So by giving them this document and just having these conversations, you know, you know exactly where that person stands when, um, things get to the point where maybe they can't make decisions for themselves or you know that in a couple of weeks we're going to be planning some kind of service. Right. So, um, I mean, what a gift that, that you can give someone so they don't have those hard questions and have to second guess, do we do it right? right. You know? No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I have a mental list of, I'm thinking in my mind, what, who I need to talk to and what I need to write down for myself, because it is, it's just one of those yeah. things you don't think about if you're not faced with an illness, you know? Um, but right. the fact is none of us are, you know, going to be here forever and it's probably good to just have a plan. Right. And I think that it's a, it's a living, breathing document. And so how you feel about it, like, it, let's just say you, as soon as we get off the phone, you Google advanced directives and start telling yours out next year you may have something totally different. You know what I mean? Right. So I think the longer that we walk on the planet and the longer that we have experienced life, we form different opinions about how we want the end to look for us. Um, and so what you thought about in your 20s is not what you think about in your 40s. And what you think about in your 40s is not what you're going to think about in your 60s and so on and so on and so on. Um, and so I think that this it's not in stone. Advanced directives are not like a will where you have to go to an attorney and get things notarized. It, that's, it's your document and you get to give that to the people who are most important to you to say, something happens to me while I'm having this appendectomy, here's what I want. But that's not, that's not going to happen. You know what right. I mean? Yes. So. <laughs> just to be ready. Yeah. What, um, so I'm just curious, is this the kind of work you've always done or did you have a different career before you were involved with ThriveWell? And how did you get into so this I, workspace? Yeah, so I've always done nonprofit work, and I've always done the social work side of the nonprofit work. Um, I started my career um, up in the St. Louis area, and I'm originally from San Antonio, but dad was military, so I moved all over the place. And um, I went up to the St. Louis area for grad school and did um, social work as my education, and then got on with a small nonprofit and um, providing direct care services to folks. Um, going and experiencing domestic violence and sexual assault and then um, knew I always wanted to get back to the San Antonio area and um, I spent my entire career up in the St. Louis area with that one organization and then um, when we decided to really get serious about looking for um, work down in San Antonio, I thought well happened to be looking for an executive director which is the position I was in in the St. Louis area and um, this is a very personal cause to me, I've had family members um, who have, who are survivors, and I've had family members who, um, you know, had to succumb to the disease and got to see caregiving at all levels in my own family um, and walk with people who have faced a diagnosis. And so, you know, it, it just sounded like such a good organization, and I really feel so incredibly humbled and thankful and blessed to be a part of this and to be able to walk with folks during this time in their lives. Um, I think that a diagnosis like this changes you on, I mean, this is a figurative thing that I'm going to say, but I mean, literally too, it, it changes you on a cellular level. 
and it gives you a sense of clarity in a way that I don't think anything else can. Um, it is, it makes you so purposeful about how you spend your time, what you choose to focus on, who you choose to spend your time with, um, and even those who are 20-year survivors. You know, it's like you put on a pair of glasses that you can never take off. You see the world in a different way, and you see life in a different way. So I just, I just feel so lucky to be a part of this. Um, but social work is absolutely my background. So I've been doing this kind of work for about 25 years all total. Um, and it's just, it's so meaningful to be a part of people's lives and, you know, hopefully add something that's positive to that. No, I'm, I have a social work background as well. And I know people will say, and I'm sure you get this all the time. Oh, how can you do that? That's just so hard. It's so sad, you know? And it, I mean, first of all, people who are drawn to social work aren't usually drawn to, you know, are, are, are drawn to the things that matter in life, I guess. And it, to me, I feel the same way. It's such a gift that people feel like they can say in these like crucial life moments, the things that matter the most to them and that, that you're, you get to be a part of that world. Uh, it, it is, it's a, it's an honor. Right. Well, and I think, and you know this, I think that the, what I have found fascinating about being a part of other people's lives is everybody has a story. And so while when you go out and talk about how cancer affects people and our community and individuals, like you get these statistics that run in your head, one in three of us will face a diagnosis. And, but ultimately those statistics are, it's a person. And that person has people who rely on them and who depend on them. And there are there are daughters, there are moms, there are fathers, there are uncles. And it's every, every statistic, every person that symbolizes a statistic has a story. And those stories are really, I mean, that's what makes us human. And so con- to connect on that kind of level is really profound. Um, and it just makes the world seem a lot smaller too, because we're all in this together. And everybody's everybody's going to face something in right, their lives. Right. There are very few people who have lived such a charmed life that they start beginning to end with no sort of trial and tribulation. So, um, you know, cancer for some folks, but other folks, it's something totally different. And so for some people, it's a lot of everything, which I find, you know, the, the resilience of, of the human being is just remarkable. So... What is there anything that about your work or about your experiences that you were hoping I would ask you about, but I haven't? I don't think so. I would like to give our phone number just in case people would like to call or if they know somebody who needs our help, because ultimately the whole purpose of Thrivewell is to be of service to this community. So we want to help as many people as we possibly can. So I would like to give you our phone number and our website. Um, and I'll make sure I also link to that on our show notes and on our Facebook group. Yeah. We'll make sure we put it in all of the social media outlets. Great. Um, And the other thing I think I just want to encourage folks that even if you feel like your situation isn't relevant or maybe you've been told a thousand times that there's just no hope out there for you, give us a call because we're a really small organization. And so we're not, there's not a lot of bureaucracy. There's not a lot of hoops to jump through. And we, we have the luxury of being really flexible of how we can provide support. So, um, again, I, if you've been told no by other organizations, 
just feel free to give us a call because we're happy to talk to you. And you're going to get either myself or my coworker, Jose, or Barb. I mean, we're really small. So the phone rings, we pick it up and talk. Perfect. Um, do you want to give the website and phone number? Sure. So our phone number is 210-593-5949. And we are typically here Monday through Friday, anytime after 8 till about 4.35 o'clock. Um, and then our website is www.thrivewell, all one word, .org, O-R-G. So T-H-R-I-V as in Victor, E-W-E-L-L dot O-R-G. Perfect. So this is the last question I usually ask uh, people that come on the podcast. And so the idea for the Family Brain Podcast is just sort of what you were talking about before, how we all have our stories and yet we all connect with each other. Um, but one of the things that in keeping the, the family brain healthy and our own brains healthy um, that I think is so critical is self-care. And so I'm wondering if you could share what are some of your own self-care practices that in this in the face of this challenging work and I'm sure often draining work, um, how you take care of yourself and make sure you're healthy to show up for people. I'm so glad that you asked because there is a lot of vicarious and secondary trauma that happens, I think, with social workers especially. Um, but with, I would say with this position, I think for me, um, one of the one of the big ways that I choose to spend my quote-unquote off time is I have two young children, and so I relish every moment I get to spend with them because what I see on the other side of people sitting with me as I talk to them during the day is all they want is more time. And so, and not just time, but quality time with the people they love. And so I don't take for granted one single minute that I get to spend with the people who I love and cherish. And most often, because my kids are so young, that's the two of them and my husband. Um, but I really, really stay focused in how much fun and what a luxury it is to be able to enjoy them, even when they drive me crazy. I still really focus on having fun with them um, because... I talk to people every day who just want to be able to get on the floor with the kids mm. and can't do that right now. They right. will be able to probably in six months, but they can't right now. And so their family is going to be forever changed by their diagnosis. And while we don't have it in our family right now, the way life works, we're bound to be faced with something that may prohibit me from doing that. Um, hopefully not for quite a while, but you never know. And so I really, really really try to stay focused on what is in front of me today and be focused and present in every single moment that I get to be with the people who I love. Um, and even as I operate during the day, I just, you can't worry about what happened yesterday. You can't worry about what may happen tomorrow because none of us know. Just be present today. Um, and I try to keep a pretty healthy headspace about that. And we get to see a lot of hope and in the work that we do too. I mean, so many people are surviving and going on to lead really healthy lives for a very long time now. And so there is all this really good celebratory news that we get to be a part of every day too. So there is, there is sadness, but there is so much hope and there's so much happiness around what we do. I love that. That's a good reminder for everybody to be in the moment and 
so easy to slip out of it. But I think like what you're saying about being faced with, you know, death, basically, you know, reminds you mm-hmm. to enjoy the moments you do have, you know, that's, that's yeah. all we're promised is what we have right this moment. Um, well, right. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk and share everything you know. That's one of the things I'm always blown away by is that people have so much more wisdom to share than they might even realize. I mean, your organization is amazing, but just also all the experiences you've had with people, you know, that you're able to then pass on to the rest of us who are just trying to be good helpers. Well, I appreciate it. And we are just so thrilled that you were able to give us the time today. Um, like I said, we're a really small organization, so the more that we can get out in the community through um, venues like this is really, really meaningful for us and the work we do. So I just, I so appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.